You're listening to Goat Rodeo. Keep an ear out for us. Welcome back to Failure. I know you missed me. This week, I started a new job, so I've been thinking a lot about all the ways I can fail at work. To keep things in perspective, and to make me feel better, I've brought you stories from three people who had really, really bad days at work. So in 2009, I moved to D.C. for the first time. Uh, I was very naive when I got here. I had just worked on the first Obama campaign, and I thought I was going to come in and get a job in the White House and help to implement the whole agenda in a week and become boys with Joe Biden. Uh, But it did not work out that way. When I got to D.C., uh, I learned that they don't really have jobs here. They have these things called unpaid internships which was a problem because I needed to make a little money to afford to eat and find a place to live. Uh, So after interning for a while, I applied for what was advertised as a marketing job for the Washington Castles, which is DC's World Team Tennis franchise. So World Team Tennis is kind of like minor league tennis. It's like bringing tennis to the masses. Uh, They have loud pump-up music and cheerleaders and a mascot. So on my first day at the castles, they told me that I was going to be the mascot topspin, the tennis ball. And this was not what I was expecting. Uh, I knew it was pretty unlikely that when I moved here that I would actually get a job in the White House, but I did not even consider the possibility that I would get a job working as a tennis ball. Like that did not occur to me. Uh, And I was thinking about all this in the castle's office and my boss is like, all right, let's show you your costume. So Topspin had uh, bright white shoes, bright white gloves, uh, blue tights and blue sleeves. Uh, There was a big tennis ball body that was yellow and round. And on top there was a a blue hat that I could look out the world through. Uh, And inside of the tennis ball, there were metal bars that held out the shape of the tennis ball. But I do remember like very vividly like seeing them topspin body like in the corner of the office like like just like staring at me like into me <laughs> like I, it's my it was like a destiny thing like it is going to happen I'm going to have to put that topspin on so when I got this job I was given no guidance on how to be a mascot nothing uh, but there were a couple of things that I knew Uh, I knew you had to be really positive and upbeat. Uh, You couldn't let people see your internal despair or or let them sense how hard you had tried in college or how you never thought it was going to come to this. Uh, You also couldn't talk. You had to convey all of your emotion through your action, through your emotion. Uh, I had a really hard time with both of these rules. Another, this was another weird one. Um, The truth is that I wasn't the only person that dressed up like Topspin. There were other people and... There was a guy who would come in who was a student at Georgetown who was like the Georgetown Hoya, sometimes like a Capitals president, and did this like because he really found like great joy in this. Um, And he was really good and would like get the crowd really into it. So one time I was out and having a really weird conversation with someone about what I did and explained that this is what I did. And they had gone and seen him 
and they were like, he, he Topspin is amazing. And I kind of lied. This was a girl I was like trying to impress. And I kind of lied about like having been topspin on the, like when I knew it wasn't me that day. So that may be even worse than being a mascot, like having like lied about having lied about being a mascot. So my first day dressing up as topspin was at a Washington Capitals hockey game. And I still don't know why. They thought there would be some overlap between hockey fans and tennis fans, and that was wrong, but I still had to go. Uh, they had me walking through the concourse, like interacting with fans. Uh, they put me in an on-camera interview with our coach, and I didn't know what to do when I was on camera. I was just standing there, and I started to like dance a little bit while I was on camera. And while the coach was talking, I looked up and I saw myself on the Jumbotron and the Verizon Center projecting out as a tennis ball <laughs> to this arena full of people. And I looked at myself and I was just like, oh, dude. And most of the fans didn't know why I was there either. They were like, why is a tennis ball at a hockey game? And I'm like, I wish I knew. And... So they were just kind of confused to see me there. Uh, but there was one fan who was really into topspin. Uh, when I would be out interacting with fans, this guy would come up to me in the same voice. He would say, what's up, tennis ball? Let's go, tennis ball. As he said that, he would start shaking me. And I would smash into the bars inside of topspin. And I tried to be polite at first, but this happened again and again. And it was like fraying my nerves. And this guy's voice became like a trigger, like I would know I was about to get smashed when I would hear him. He'd be like, what's up, tennis ball? Let's go, tennis ball. And I would start shaking inside a topspin. And it was kind of like in Jurassic Park when they see the puddles start to tremble. They know that the T-Rex is coming. And I would hear him. I would try to get on my guard, but I couldn't get away from him. And he would grab me and start shaking me. <laughs> like, what's up, tennis ball? Let's go, tennis ball. And as this was going on, I was getting more and more frustrated. And it wasn't just that night. It was like months of embarrassment and not getting a job and accidentally becoming a tennis ball. It was all coming out in that moment. So eventually, I was walking through the concourse. And I heard the guy. He's like, what's up, tennis ball? And I turned to him and I said, get the fuck out of my face. Get the fuck off me and get the fuck out of my face. And he was not expecting that kind of language from a tennis ball. But it took him aback, and I was able to get away from him and uh, go into the bathroom to get changed. Uh, I didn't get to go, like, backstage. I had to go into a public restroom at a hockey game as a tennis ball. And I'm in the stall taking topspin up over my head. And I hear a distinctive voice. Say it to my face, tennis ball. <laughs> so this guy had followed me in there to fight me <laughs> as topspin. And I did not know what to do. And, and maybe I should have fought the guy. But I was just like, come on, man. I'm just trying to be a tennis ball here. All game, you're shaking me. You're shaking me. Just, I, I, this is not what I wanted. You think I wanted to be a tennis ball? Why can't you just let me be a mascot? And the guy starts crying, and he's like, I'm sorry, man. I can see you're just trying to be a tennis ball, and I respect that. So I was able to get him off of me and, and get out of there. And 
it was a really dark time and a really difficult moment, but I was able to survive for the rest of the summer as topspin. And I never got a job in the White House, but this summer I went back to a Castles game for the first time and I was at the stadium and I looked out and I saw topspin on the other end. And it was like I was looking at myself as a 24 year old again. And I walked up to whatever stranger was in that tennis ball. I gave him a hug and I said, hang in there, man. That was Kevin. Up next, we have a story from Mike Kane. Um, so I've always been blessed with very good health. I, uh, knock on wood, I've never broken any bones. I've never had any major surgery. When I, when I floss, my gums don't bleed. I'm just, I'm, I'm kind of the complete package, if you will. Um, I think if anybody were to take a knock at my health, the only thing that they could maybe say is that I have debilitating panic attacks. I mean, they are awful. And like, as a guy, this is a blow to your ego because when you're a kid, they tell you that a man should be able to handle any situation, no matter how stressful it is. And somehow or another, they make panic out to be like it's the antithesis of that or something, which it's not. But like, like if you listen to like a ball game, they'll say something like, you know, the the quarterback's feeling the pressure coming from the left side, and he just panics, throws an interception, you know. But it, like that's not what my panic attacks are like. Like I could be walking along, just chilling. And then all of a sudden, I can't breathe. I mean, I can breathe, but it feels like the air is coming in through a straw. And then my heart catches wind of the fact that I can't breathe. And it goes, what's that? You can't breathe? Well, holy shit, I'll start beating really fast. Which is, like, not helpful at all, you know. And uh, so, like, I'm short of breath, and my heart's beating so fast, it's like a, like a little hummingbird or, like, like Rocky on the speed bag. Just put it up, put it up, put it I feel like my heart's going to pop and all I want to do is like find one thought where I can just focus on it, but I can't cause my mind's swimming and it feels like I'm going to die. And then just like that, it's over. And the funny thing about panic is that it's actually nothing. It's actually your body fooling you into thinking like you need to like, you know, fly away from like whatever danger it is. So I've learned these breathing exercises that help me get through them. And then uh, I got a prescription of Xanax, which is, like, fucking awesome. Like, if you can get one of those, you should grab it. And the Xanax take about 15, 20 minutes to kick in. And the longest the panic attack can last is 15 to 20 minutes. So they're pretty pointless. And then it's just you end up just taking one, drinking a glass of wine, and (laughs) relaxing for the evening. So nine times out of ten, like, I can get through my panic attacks. But it's the tenth time that is, like, a doozy. And that's the one I had last December. And again, like this is like the most low stressful time of my life. It's like right before Christmas. And you know, like that time when you're at work and you're walking around and like people are like wrapping presents in their office and you're like, are you even going to like pretend to be working here? Like that's how, just to give you an idea, like how low key it was. I took a two hour lunch break and I went downtown I had Thai food and then I came back and I'm just like doing some like end of the year closeout BS and all of a sudden I can't breathe. And so I go, oh, okay, I know this. This is a panic attack. It's fine. I'll stand up, do one of my breathing exercises. But when I go to breathe in, I got this like real sharp pain in my heart. And it, it felt like somebody was standing on my chest with a baseball cleat. And I, 
couldn't catch my breath, and then my left arm went numb, and I went, oh my God, I'm having a heart attack. And just to give you like an idea like how my brain works, the first thought I had was, don't go out and tell anybody, that would be embarrassing. So like I get up from my desk and like I'm like pacing back and forth, like trying to walk off the heart attack, you know, like you might do. And, uh, but it's not going away. So I finally decided to go outside and across the hallway is this woman that I've worked with for like 10 years and she knows I'm a little bit kooky, you know, so I, I went over and I knocked on her door and I poked my head in and I said, uh, I said, hey, I don't want to like alarm you, but I think I'm having a heart attack. And I'll never forget it. She turned and she looked at me with these like pitiful eyes and she just goes, a heart attack or a panic attack? And I went, oh, yeah, no, I can see why you might think that. No, I'm actually having a fucking heart attack. I was like, I think I'm going to need you to call 911. And she goes, uh, okay, we could do that. Or why don't we wait five minutes, see if it passes? And I was like, really? Do you like really want your last words to me to be, be this condescending? You know? So I go back into my office, and uh, I'm in there for like maybe two seconds, and I collapse on the ground. And at that moment, I had like a decision to make. I said, do I like swallow my pride and call 911 and have EMTs come to the building and take over the sixth floor and like wheel me out of here over what I know will inevitably be a panic attack? Or do I like keep my rep and die of a heart attack in my office? So obviously I weighed the pros and cons. I, uh, I thought about it. I said, you know... Let's just let's just say for a second that I died in my office. Like what the the pros would be that they'd have something to say about me at my funeral, you know? They'd be like that, that Mike Kane was a hard-working son of a bitch. Well, I tell you what, right up till the end, the guy was mid-email, you know? But then I started thinking about my kids, you know? And I have two daughters and the thought of like never holding one of them ever again or like I mean, just forget, like, graduations and weddings. I mean, just not getting to hug or kiss them ever again would be brutal, you know? And I thought, I don't want to die. And I thought of my wife, with whom I'm madly in love, and I said, you know, if this... You know, if she would be half as devastated as I would be if she died, I don't think she, I don't think she could take it, you know? And then, like, somewhere in the back of my head, like, I kind of always thought she would go first, you know? So that I could, like, shoulder that grief for her. That was the way I hoped it would go, you know? So I had to make this decision, but luckily my coworker walks in and she came in to check on me and she goes, Hey, are you, Oh shit. And she saw me on the floor and she called 911 and I'm sure it was a lot longer than this, but it felt like maybe 30 seconds passed before my worst nightmare had happened. Like the entire office is like jockeying outside my office, trying to get a look at Mike on the floor and the EMTs are pushing past and they get through with the gurney. And the EMT walks in and he took like maybe like half a glance at me and he goes, dude, do you suffer from panic attacks? And I went, I said, yeah, I said, I do. But right now I'm, I'm having a heart attack. And he looks at me and he goes, no, you're not. You're having a panic attack. Get up. And I went, I can't. I said, no, I, was like, I got chest pain and a numb arm. And he goes, dude, panic attack. Come on, get up on the big boy bed. And right when he said that, I started to get my breath back and I went, oh God, no. And I stood up 
And then they put me on the gurney and they start rolling me past all my coworkers who were just like shaking their heads like, really, Mike? Like you couldn't, you couldn't fight through this one, you know? And I'm like, okay, pray for me. You know, and like they're pushing me down the hallway. By the time we got to the elevator, like all the colors back in my face, you know, and they took me down and put me in the ambulance out front and I'm fine. Like, you know, you're fine when your first thought is like, you're in the ambulance and you go, I don't know if my health insurance covers ambulance rides. I'll have to, I'll have to check into this, you know, I'm like... So they put the siren on for me. They didn't have to. Not an emergency at all, but they were driving me. And I'm, like, checking email on the way to the hospital. <laughs> and, uh, and, then I, and then they took me to Washington and Venice, which is, like, an old-school ER, like, right in the heart of the city. And we go in there, and the place is jam-packed. Like, every single curtained-off area is, like, housing some, like, level five emergency. And the overflow, they just line us up along the wall, and it's just people in gurneys or people in wheelchairs. And the people that I'm in line with are, like, the most either the most fucked up, like, mental disorders you've ever seen. There was a woman that was trying to pick flowers out of the air. <laughs> I was like, what the fuck? Or they had like crazy, crazy medical emergencies and I was sitting there and then the doors blow open and they bring in this guy on a stretcher and he's got the sheet pulled up to his neck and there's a big red spot right here and he's going, oh God, I've been shot. I've been shot. And the woman's like behind him like, my baby's been shot. Somebody do something. And I'm watching the whole thing like it's a movie. I'm just like, damn, he got shot. I've never seen a gunshot wound before. And I'm sitting there watching all this, and I don't realize that this nurse is now standing like a foot away from me. And she's staring at me, and she goes, why are you here? And I turned, and I looked at her, and I went, huh? What? Oh. <laughs> uh, why am I here? I said, um, I said well, um, sometimes I get nervous. And she looked at me, and she goes, you had a panic attack? And I went, yeah, but there was chest pain involved. And she goes, there was chest. She's like, did you have anything spicy to eat for lunch? And I went, no. Well, actually, <laughs> now that you mentioned I did have Thai for lunch, yeah. And she goes, so you had a panic attack mixed with heartburn. She's like, that's nothing. She said, go out in the waiting room. And she kicked me out of the ER. And I had to, I had to walk past all these people like, who actually deserved to be there with like, legitimate medical emergencies. And I'm like, you guys are going to be fine. Like, I'm like walking out. And I went and I sat out in the waiting room with everyone's healthy family members. This is where all the healthy people in the ER are. They're all sitting out there with me. And I sat out there for two hours and they never came out <laughs> to like talk to me. There may be like no record that I was ever there. I don't even know. But nobody they look all frazzled and like, what happened? And I said, no, nope, nothing. I said, we're good. We can, we can roll right out of here. And so we went, we went out to the car and I'm putting my seatbelt on. I'm driving, by the way, because I'm fine. There's no problem. You know, and, uh, my nine-year-old from the back, she goes, Daddy, you were in the hospital. What happened? And I thought about telling her that, like, I couldn't breathe, and I thought my heart was going to pop, and I thought I was going to die. And I turned around, and I looked at her, and I said, nothing. There's nothing wrong with Daddy. That's the end. And now, Mike Bayreuther. Growing up, I was lucky. I came home to someone who told me every day that if I worked hard and I believed in myself, I could accomplish all of my goals. That person, of course, was Oprah Winfrey. 
Her show was on in our living room every day when I got home from school. My parents, on the other hand, were more um, pessimistic about my potential. The running thing they would say to me growing up was, Mike, you'll never be successful until you learn that good enough isn't good enough, and your work is always just good enough. And so I grew up with this weird dichotomy of like really big ambition and hope, clearly compensating for a severe lack of self-esteem. So it's not surprising that I ended up in an industry whose motto is fake it until you make it, cable television. And on, when I was 26, I got sent on my first big TV shoot. I got flown down to Atlanta and I was at a hotel and I thought, this is my chance to prove it. This is my chance to prove that I can make it and be successful in this industry. All I got to do is show up on time, be as helpful as possible and act professional. And I'm waiting at my hotel for the pre-production meeting. Pre-pro is where um, the director and all the producers and, you know, um, some of the folks in the crew get together and talk about the schedule for the day ahead. And I'm, uh, it's about five minutes till the meeting starts and, I'm, I, I, and I get a text from one of my coworkers. He says, hey, are you coming to this meeting? And I'm like, yeah, I'm at the hotel waiting for you guys. And he's like, well, the meeting starts in five minutes at the studio on the other side of town. I'm like, oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God. I burst out of the hotel, I jump into a cab and I scream, I need to get to Tyler Perry Studios. To which the cab driver says, I don't know where that is. And I'm like, Google it. So he starts driving down the freeway and I call my girlfriend and I'm like, Molly, I screwed up. All I had to do was show up on time to a big meeting and I couldn't do that. It's the same old story. Good enough wasn't good enough. She's like, Oh, hi. That's a lot of emotional baggage to bring to a midday phone call, I'll admit. (laughs) She's like, what's wrong? I'm sure you can fix it. I'm like, no, this is all a disaster. But she calms me down, and and I I arrive about 20 minutes later at Tyler Perry Studios. And I walk in, and and there's, uh, I'm in the the lobby of Tyler Perry Studios, and, and, and there's a fountain. And on the fountain, it says, Tyler Perry Studios, where even wishes go to dream which is confusing because it doesn't make sense, but also because I am living a nightmare. As I am ushered into the meeting now a full half an hour late, my boss looks at me and she scowls and she says, hi Mike, so glad you could make it. And I feel like, oh God, I have let everyone down and I cannot sleep that night when I am at the hotel because I'm thinking I've always ma- already managed to be late to the one meeting I couldn't be late to. I better find some way to be helpful and professional on set tomorrow. So the next day I am up at like 5.30. I am there before first call. I am walking around getting people coffee who already have coffee. I am making copies of scripts where there are already copies of those scripts. I am doing anything I can to at least seem like I am there to help. And around 9 a.m., our first actor arrives. Our first actor, of course, is Tyler Perry. Tyler is tall and handsome, and he happens to own the entire facility that we are working at. The man has an incredible presence to him. We are all a little dumbstruck and starstruck, and as he steps in front of the cameras, the lights go on, and they hand him the script of lines that I have written for him. Now, this script was you know, sort of just a bunch of lines for Tyler to tell his fans about his new show coming to the network and why they should watch. And as they start to roll the camera, Tyler takes one look at these lines and says, oh, these are for me? Oh yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't need this. And then he crumples up the script and hands it off to a PA. 
As the writer of this spot, my only job on set really is to help inform the actors and directors about what my script meant to be. But instead, Tyler is going to improv this whole thing. And guess what? For the next 15 minutes, he improvises lines that are better than anything I've been trying to write for the past six weeks. Because surprisingly, Tyler Perry is better at writing for Tyler Perry than a goofy white boy from the suburbs. For the rest of the morning, Tyler shoots his scenes and embellishes my script in ways that makes what I have written seem not only complacent, but lazy and not that funny. So by the time we're at lunch, all I can think is, oh my God, I was late the first day. I'm no help on set. The script I wrote was just good enough. It's the same old story which is the right amount of emotional baggage to bring to craft services when you get a giant pulled pork sandwich and just eat it quietly and sadly in the corner of a giant studio, which is all I'm doing thinking the next actor we have today, there is no way they're going to read my lines. My stupid idea about talking about how uh, we knew that Tyler Perry Wright directed and produced, but we didn't know he did everything on a shoot. The call lunch... The doors open, and the next actor through is Oprah Winfrey. If Tyler is a star, Oprah is a supernova. Everyone's attention immediately turns to her, and as she walks through the door, we just spontaneously begin to applaud. We're just like, oh, Oprah, thank you. Thank you so much for being here. The closest thing I think I can imagine to being like Oprah in my life would be if you've ever had a surprise birthday party and when you walk through the door everyone just is so happy to see you just for being you and being there like you've arrived Oprah gets that feeling every time she walks through any door every single day of her life and like a fish to water she just waves to everyone she's like hey everybody let's have a great shoot and we're all like okay Oprah we will for you we will Oprah has got an entourage with her, which isn't like a bro sort of, you know, man's entourage from an HBO show. No, it's it's her personal hair and makeup, of course. There's a journalist from Ebony Magazine who's doing a profile on her. And then also about a half dozen underprivileged girls from the local community with whom Oprah is spending the day because Oprah is a national treasure. <laughs> She's showing them around set, and then she gets in her position, and they turn the lights on, and, and they set up the shot. And I'm sitting here thinking, she's going to ignore my script, but I want to see this person, this person I've admired my whole life, do what they do best. So I sort of sneakily creep behind the director, and I look over his shoulder at the monitor. And as he calls action, Oprah looks through the camera, and she says, you know, when Tyler Perry decided to come to the Oprah Winfrey Network, I knew he'd be writing, directing, and producing, but I had no idea that he would do everything which is line for line, verbatim, what I've written. And for the first time in my career, I'm filled with this sense of pride in my work and a sense of accomplishment, and also this strange feeling of incredible power because my words are coming out of Oprah Winfrey's mouth. And for the rest of the day, she and Tyler shoot their scenes that I have written, and they have a blast, and they're goofing off, and everyone's enjoying themselves, and the shoot goes really smoothly, and by the time they call rap, everyone applauds, and everyone's thanking each other. I'm thanking the crew and shaking the hand of the director, and I turn to my life, and here comes Sherry. 
Sherry, for those of you who didn't watch The Oprah Show, is the longtime executive producer of The Oprah Show and um, at the time was also the president of The Oprah Winfrey Network. She comes over to me and she gives me a big hug and she says, Mike, it was so great to work with you. And I'm like, oh, thanks, Sherry. That means a lot coming from someone like you. And she says, you know what? You need to meet Oprah. And at this point, time just slows down for me. She wraps her arm around me and she walks me across the studio. When we break the outer orbit of the entourage that Oprah has with her, and all I'm thinking is, Mike, be professional. Be professional. Fake it until you make it. You gotta fake it right here, bud. Sherry says, Oprah, meet Mike, our brilliant writer. And then there she is, Oprah Winfrey. She turns around. She gives me that big smile. She reaches out her hand and she starts shaking my hand. She says, hey, Mike, it's so nice to meet you. And I look back at Oprah, shaking her hand with this big, dumb grin on my face. And I say, nothing. For what feels like an awkward eternity, I just stare at Oprah, shaking her hand. And then my gaze begins to drift. I'm looking at my boss. I'm looking at the director and the producers. I'm just like wandering around the room with my eyes because I don't know if this is real or if I'm in some sort of dream that one of my wishes is having. But by the time my gaze comes back to Oprah, she, a woman who meets a fair number of crazy fans, gives me a look like I am sort of a crazed murderer in an alley. It looks like I have like got two heads or something. She glares at me and sort of pulls her neck back and kind of says, okay, Mike, nice to meet you. And then as best she can, unlocks her hand away from my grip and moves away back into her entourage. It is clear to everyone present that I have a lot of faking it to go before I know that I've made it. But I've come a long way from where I've started in my career. I still have a lot of goals I want to accomplish, but I know that if my work can be good enough for Oprah, well, that's good enough for me. That's it for this month. Special thanks to Kevin, Mike Kane, and Mike Bayreuther for sharing stories, and to all of you for tuning in. For more stories from Mike Kane and Mike Bayreuther, Look for them at story shows around the city like Perfect Liars Club, Story District, and more. Failure is produced and distributed by Goat Rodeo in Washington, D.C. and me, Kate Riley. To find shows like this one and more, you can visit us at GoatRodeoDC.com. For outtakes and extra footage, you can follow me on Twitter at Riley underscore Kate and follow the show at Facebook.com slash FailurePod. If you're looking for a new podcast, I suggest checking out Your Story Here from our producer, Lizzie Peabody. Stick around after the credits for a sneak preview. I'm Kate Riley, and this is Failure. Keep an ear out for us. Mind telling me your name? Yeah, sure. My name is Becky Harlan. Michael Kroger, recreational hockey player, lawyer, Chicago, Illinois. My name is Vernon Draper. Jimmy Winston. I'm Jay Dev. Gina Cristina Simo. Christian Glasset. 
Wait, actually, my yeah. name is William Hebert. All right, who are you? Who am I? That's a damn good question. <laughs> I am a friend of yours. I am a computer scientist from France. I'm a human being. I'm also a gambler. I'm your mother. <laughs> I'm just everything that's good. Mixed with a little bang. And I'm Lizzie Peabody. This is Your Story Here, a podcast about humans and the common threads that bind us. I first started interviewing strangers after a couple of decades of being told not to talk to them. This show is about sharing some of the conversations that I've had. Now they're yours too. When I was little, my mom used to tell me stories to get me to fall asleep. I always asked for the same kind of story, a Bill and Rachel story. Here's my mom. It was the story you wanted to hear at at nap time. I would help you go to sleep by telling you a Bill and Rachel story. And it, what happened really, as I remember, was that things that you were particularly afraid of would happen to Bill and Rachel, and you listened with great relish to the story and asked for more details. (laughs) Like what kinds of things would happen? Well, the things that you were afraid of, I guess, bee stings, broken arms or legs, dog bites, appendicitis for sure, bloody noses, cuts, measles, mumps, and chicken pox, definitely earaches, bug bites, pokes in the eye, snake bites, lacerations, sunburn, poison ivy. I don't think they had car accidents, but I do think they fell off bicycles, stomach aches, definitely stitches, falling off playground equipment, and um, and got, you know, got sick with fevers and things like and that. And they had to have shots. You were very afraid of shots. It could be that I started telling you those stories to desensitize you to going to the doctor so that there was a narrative where you went, where somebody went to the doctor and then got better and was brave and all that stuff. And it ended up being a series of stories about non-fatal medical emergencies and conditions that happened to Bill and Rachel. It was the way that you somehow worked out your fears of doctors and and sickness was by hearing all about it. (laughs) I don't really remember these stories. I was only three during the era of Bill and Rachel, but I've heard my mom talk about them a few times over the years, and somehow I'm not that surprised by my morbid preschool self. I think when we hear our fears played out, they become concrete and somehow more manageable. Lately, I've been battling a sense of foreboding. This feeling deep down that something bad is about to happen. How can it be that I've been so lucky for so much of my life? Surely the cosmic pendulum is bound to swing back at some point. I just don't know when or where. And it's a feeling that's hard to shake. In a way, I think I'm still telling myself Bill and Rachel stories. When I listen to people talk about their lives, I'm listening for echoes of my own fears. This episode is a little different. We'll hear from three different women, Angela, Jan, and Anne, but we'll hear from each of them more than once. 